Good morning. Good to see you today. Keep my family in your prayers. Our puppy Sandy on Friday, we had her spayed, and so she uh, is doing better. She's doing fine. She doesn't even realize, I think, what's happened to her, and she doesn't understand why we're making her wear a cone around her neck. And uh, so seeing a dog with one of those cones is kind of funny. And uh, they've come a long way. They actually have this little pillow thing you can put around her. So we've been doing that for a while. But she looked like she was starting to get to her stitches. So we put the old-fashioned cone on her head, and she didn't like that. And I put it on her head, and she just sat there and stared at me all night long. Like, like what have you done to me, right? And uh, so she didn't really need that, so we put the other little pillow thing back on, and, and she's doing well. But when she walks around the house, she is having some problems walking. Because she knows where she's supposed to go, and she can see where she's supposed to go, but she doesn't realize that this cone or this pillow is going hit to the, hit the wall or hit the entrance of the door. And so there's been a couple of times where she's walked into something, and it scared her a little bit, right? And uh, so she can't quite see, uh, but she knows what she's supposed to do, but she needs some help sometimes getting around. When it comes to spiritual vision, which is what we're talking about today, often we know what God has called us to do. Many times we do know what it is and what we want to do, but sometimes we need a little help seeing around the corners. Sometimes we need a little help implementing our vision, and today we're going to look at a passage today that will give us help for that. Vision is defined as the ability to think about or plan the future with imagination or wisdom. The ability to think about or plan the future with imagination or wisdom, but it takes implementation to be successful. You know, I have uh, bad vision, and so I wear contact lenses. Without any contact lenses or glasses, I can't see anything, let alone do anything. Uh, But once I have the lenses in my eyes, I can see something. So I can see to take out the trash. I can see to get to the kitchen to scramble some eggs. I can see to, to go and get in the car and drive. But I can't just see it. In order to accomplish it, what do I have to do? I have to actually do what I want to do, right? That's implementation. It means to put a plan into effect. So to be successful, a vision must leave what you can see and then be put into effect. And many of you know this. But you know, visions come in all sorts of forms, all sorts of shapes, all sorts of sizes. You can have a vision for your job. You can have a vision for your career. You can have a vision for even your family. Uh, You can have a vision for your entire life. But if you know Jesus, you are a child of God. So on some level, you should have a spiritual vision for your life, a a Christian vision, if you will, for what God has for you. How would you like to serve God and his kingdom? We mentioned last week that you are servants of Jesus as a believer. You can't opt out of being a servant. You are his servant. And so the question is, Not if you are a servant, but how are you going to serve him? That is your personal spiritual vision. As we look at the life of Nehemiah and his vision to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, we're going to see some steps as to how we can develop the spiritual vision that God has given us because I believe that God will put into the heart of every believer some type of spiritual vision for their life, that includes building God's kingdom. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, 
and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us. And despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Father in heaven, as we continue to worship here today, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Lord, which tells so much the story of a man whose vision you put in his heart for the welfare of Israel, for the welfare of your kingdom. But Father, each of us as a member of the body of Christ has a spiritual vision or should have a spiritual vision you've given us. Lord, it might be something as simple as a vision to get my grandchildren to church. It might be something as, 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 as broad as starting a ministry and outreach. But we don't know what it is. But everybody has something you've put in their life, a group of people, a vision that only they can carry out as a member of the body of Christ. Father, I thank you that our church has a very clear vision. We're called to be grounded in you. We're called to be growing in Christ. We're called to be giving to others. And that is where we are headed, and that is what we're going to do as a church. So, Father, we thank you for the vision you've given us. Lord, and we thank you, Father, uh, for the vision that you give each and every person personally. Show us today, Lord, as we continue on, uh, how we can achieve the visions you've put in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you speak through me that you uh, give me your words today and fill me with your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to give you four steps, not three, but four, all right? 
Because I try to I try to get my points right from Scripture. Four steps that will need uh, to be taken when you're developing a vision. Four steps that will need to be taken when you're developing a vision. Number one, know the opposition. Wait a second. There's going to be opposition to my spiritual vision? Yes, there will be. Whenever you are trying to do something in obedience to Jesus Christ, there will always be opposition. Always. Look at verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Now try to picture this scene. Nehemiah is making this grand entrance back to Judah, flanked by the king's escort. He asked for it last week. We talked about being bold and asking for opportunities and being courageous. And he asked for it and he gave it to him. And this would make a strong statement to not only his enemies that he means business in accomplishing his vision, but also to his own people that this is a rebuilding project that he is taking very seriously and he's got the backing of the king. However, when someone takes a vision seriously, it will always be perceived a perceived threat to someone else because you're putting them on notice that things are about to change, that things are changing. Look what he says in verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They did not want the Israelites to be strengthened to be encouraged they're their enemies and ever since the first exiles had returned to judah there had always been opposition by their enemies in this case the opposition came from outside but i want to show you a few sub points today three places of origin where opposition to the things of god come three three places and this is really the only three places they can come the opposition of god number one where does opposition come from first of all satan there's satanic opposition. Don't mistake the spiritual opposition you will receive when preparing to execute your spiritual vision. The last thing Satan desires is a committed Christian to be serious about their faith. Whether you're getting serious about rebuilding your life or, or your faith or your church involvement or some organization, Satan will be quick to use his forces of darkness to oppose you. He hates the things of God. He hates the kingdom of God. And if a church has no vision and if a church is not doing anything for the kingdom of God, Satan will leave that church alone because they are no threat to him. But a church that is listening to the word of God, that is filled with the Holy Spirit, that is making disciples, you know there will be satanic opposition. Now, the great thing is, is that we don't have to be paralyzed by that opposition. We just have to know what will occur. We have to know when it's happening so we know that what it is. We know how to deal with it. Secondly, the other form of opposition that's somehow closely related to the first, but not always, is others, other people. Don't mistake that Satan also works in the lives of other people and influences them, maybe not directly, but influences them through the culture to oppose the things of God. Many times you might have a personal issue with someone, and they're not necessarily possessed by Satan, but they're listening to Satan's lies about the world 
listening to Satan's influence about how things should be done, and you get, and you get uh, resistance from them. Most of the time, others don't even know that this is going on. And when people then become a roadblock to a spiritual vision, we must remember that it's ultimately not about them. Scripture says we're not having a war against flesh and blood. They're caught up either in their own sin or under the influence of Satan. We're always battling against the evil principalities and authorities. Scripture tells us that. And finally, number three, the other obstacle, the opposition, is sometimes yourself. Sometimes yourself. Sometimes our own worst enemy is our own thoughts, our own doubts, our own insecurities. We doubt the vision God's given us in our hearts. We become quick to abandon it. Why? Because our faith is often in our own abilities and not in the one who gives us the ability. I'll say that again. Our, our faith is often in our own abilities and not in the one who gives us the ability. My poor dog knows how to walk around the house. She knows where things are. But she's used to doing it on her own. And when she can't quite see everything, she just doesn't walk as much. Or she just sits there in the, she sits there in the, uh, in the den and stares at me. <laughs> Why did you put this on me? Sometimes we are our own enemies with our vision. There was a time when Spain possessed the territory on both sides of the Straits of Gibraltar. And on their coins, they stamped the two pillars of Hercules, which is what the two pieces of rock were called. And on, and on a scroll, there were the words, no more beyond, meaning that there is nothing else out there. That's what they had on their coin. This is where the world ends, there at the Strait of Gibraltar and off Spain. Then came the discovery of the New World, and with it, the realization that there was, in fact, something out there. So they changed the coins to go from, to read from no more beyond to just more beyond. Right? Instead of that being a, uh, this is where the world ends, it became a gateway to where the world continues. Sometimes our limits don't come from God. They come from ourselves. So when you start to rebuild, know what your opposition is, respond appropriately, and the best way to respond is through prayer and trust in Christ, as, in some, and we'll, as we'll see, some other tools we can use. Number two, not only do we know the opposition, secondly, we gather the facts. Gather the facts. This is what Nehemiah did. Look what he says in verse 11. Went to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night and had a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. So Nehemiah travels this nearly 1,000-mile journey to Jerusalem. That's like going from you know, here to Texas, okay? And there was no rest stops or nice cars or anything like that. And, never, and so when he got to Jerusalem after a thousand miles, what did he do? He rested for three days, which is smart. Never underestimate the power of a proper Sabbath, a proper rest time when executing your vision, being on mission for God. We, we can't run on fumes. We have to refuel. And then as he did, Nehemiah started the gathering process. Wisdom has been defined as this. 
knowing the right thing, doing the right thing, doing it at the right time, in the right way, to the right extent. <laughs> it's all about the timing of it, right? And so he's waiting on the timing. And the thing about a personal vision, vision is this. The thing about a personal vision is it's personal, right? And it was personal to him. So he goes out at night to not bring attention to himself, and he doesn't even tell the people with him why they're going. And then verse 13 through 16, he gives all these details of what he did. He says, I went out to this gate over here. I went over to this gate. I inspected the walls. Verse 14 talks about how he went down to this gate and this pool. And verse 15, he went out and inspected this wall. And verse 16 says, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, any of them, where to do the work. This shows how Nehemiah was very diligent, very thorough in assessing the situation he was about to get involved in. He didn't just say, hey, God's called me to do this. Let's go out and do it. Let's go storm hell with a water pistol. Not what he did. He had this vision. He traveled. And then he planned. He gathered the facts. His vision was to rebuild the wall. So he went over to this part of the wall and he looked at it. Went at night so nobody could ask him a bunch of questions. What you doing over there at that wall? Right? Went over there by himself so he could have time to look at it. Went over to this pool and this gate and this wall. Got a grand scope of just what was he dealing with. I imagine there were times when he was looking at the wall and he looked at this part of the wall and that part of the wall and he probably was like, man, maybe... <laughs> Maybe I bit off a little more than I could chew. I bet he had those thoughts, those doubts. Maybe God's not calling me to do this. Right? Things look difficult. But he was patient. He was deliberate. He inspected the wall. He gathered the facts. And he did the little things that are necessary, that aren't necessarily exciting, but they were necessary to give him success in his endeavor. Everybody wants to go back and build a wall, but not everybody wants to sit there and measure the wall and, and, and look at the wall and see where all the uh, problems are and this and that. And they took the time to do that. He didn't know just what parts of the wall were broken, what parts of the condition they were in. And as you develop the vision God's given you for your life or your church or an organization or your family, it's crucial to not jump ahead to the more exciting things. It'll take time. It'll take deliberation to gather all the facts to get an accurate depiction of the situation. From time to time, you know, my children will come to me about some atrocity one has done to the other, right? Some unfairness. And the easy thing for me to do is just dole out discipline and not listen to them, right? But they know that I'm going to put them on trial, <laughs> right? Okay, now start at the beginning. Now tell me what you said. Now why did you say that? Why are you in there in the first place? <laughs> you know? and, and, and try to un unpack the whole picture so then I can make a wise and hopefully fair decision as to what needs to happen. That's what we do with anything in our life. Try to get the whole picture. Try to get all the sides of a story. Try to get all the measurements of a wall. 
Take your time with it. Gather the facts. Third, the fun part, enlist your team. Enlist your team. You might be saying, well, pastor, this is a personal vision that that I have in my own life. I don't really need a team. I'm going to tell you why you do need a team, even if it's just a small little thing that God has put in your heart. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. You see these walls, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates burn. Now come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. Verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So what does Nehemiah do? He enlists his team. And he gives them an honest appraisal of the situation. He doesn't say, you know what? The walls aren't as bad as I thought. It's not what he says. He, he, if you read what he says closely, he doesn't even use the word rebuild. What's he say? Build. That's how bad they were. <laughs> it's not even a rebuild. It's a build. Talk about sometimes how people need, or churches or communities need to have revival. And, and you may have heard, no, we don't need a revival. We need a Bible, <laughs> right? There's no read to it. That's kind of what he's saying. We have to build. And he gives them an honest appraisal. This is the situation. And then he gives them a reason to build. He underscored that this was a, a God vision. And he shows how God's hand was in it based on how God moved the king to even allow this to happen. It was a miracle to even get themselves in this position in the first place. Where is the evidence that God is in your vision? Nehemiah had it. And this convinced the team that they would be successful. There was a need. There was a reason. There was success in God. What does this look like specifically in your life? Maybe if God is calling you to a specific ministry or a calling in the church, maybe you pick a couple friends to help you. Right? Maybe if you're rebuilding an aspect of your life, maybe you enlist a few accountability partners to, to help you stay on track. If you're on a mission, gospel conversations, enlist others to help you think of opportunities or to, or to help you be successful in opportunities you have. The point is, even though a vision may be personal, you often need others to help you carry it out. You can't do it alone. You know, lately, I don't know why, but I, I've seen a lot of ads on my social media feed for weight loss products. I just can't figure out why it's on my feed. <laughs> this is a joke. You can laugh at that, all right? But almost all of them, almost all of them have some accountability feature. They all do. You know, I had a coach to help me through it, or I had this app that helped me through it, or I had this Facebook group that helped me through it. You would think something is eating less would be easy, right? You would think, oh, I can just eat less, right? Well, I thought that last night until I went in the kitchen and ate about five or six little mini Snicker bars that we had for some reason. Right? You would think that would be easy. It's not. Most people. It takes accountability. Anything that you're trying to do for yourself to grow in Christ, it, it takes people to help you. You must be humble enough, dependent enough on the Lord to ask for help 
and enlist a team. And then number four, finally, defend your vision. Defend your vision. Now, a vision, I'll be careful a little bit because pastors and leaders can use vision to steamroll anything they want to sometimes. God's called me to do this, so you got to let me do it. That's not the case. That's not the truth. So we need to understand that a vision is somewhat subjective. But if you've prayed about your vision for ministry, and if your vision doesn't contradict Scripture, and it isn't sinful in some way, defend your vision. Many God-sized visions fail, not because God's not in it, but because of either poor communication, poor timing, or poor implementation. And we see Nehemiah had the proper communication. He had the proper timing. I'm going to see he had the proper implementation. But that doesn't mean that God's still not in it and moving, which is why you need to be constantly in prayer to God. And a godly vision doesn't cause chaos in a person's life, in your own life, a sinful type of chaos. It doesn't cause disorder. A godly vision doesn't cause sinful chaos or disorder in a church's life. There might be some growing pains. There might be some changes, but it's not going to be chaotic if God is in it. If God's in it, it will bring glory to God. If God's in it, God will be glorified every step of the way. But it's often difficult to truly know, since we all have subjective feelings, we all have subjective visions, which is why your vision needs to be bathed in prayer, must not contradict the word of God. If your vision is just simply to, to invite your grandchildren to church, well, there's nothing unbiblical about that. Of course, that's a good vision. Of course, that's something that the Lord would have you to do. How are you going to get him here? That's where the implementation starts in. Look at verse 19. When Samballot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, of, uh, Ammonite servant and Gesh and the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? When you start implementing your vision, you're going to get some derision. Even if, going back to the weight loss thing, if you try to lose weight, you probably have people even say, why, why are you trying to lose weight? Uh, I'm trying to live, <laughs> right? Trying to be healthy. Even something as simple as that, you will have people, you will have to defend. Look at, how he, look at how he defended verse 20. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is what he means by this. So this is a vision God's given us. He hasn't given it to you. You're not the people of God. We're going to do this because God is in it. He tells the enemies that their success is dependent on God. That God's servants will work and success will have success because the vision is of God. You know, our own salvation... Is based on a vision. Did you know that? We live this world. We sinned and broke God's law. And God had vision. He looked down and knew that we would need a way back to him. 
And his vision was to send Jesus to this world. Jesus left his heavenly abode and he came to this world. And he had one vision. Now, he did a lot of great things. He taught about the kingdom of God. He healed people. Brought people back to life. But his one vision was to die for the sins of humanity. And praise the Lord, he was successful. Amen. Praise the Lord that even in the garden when he sweated and cried and bled, he still was obedient to the Father's will and took our sin on the cross and was raised from the dead three days later. And now he has given us a vision. All of us have at least one vision. He says, until the end of time, go out and make disciples. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's our vision as a church. Go out and make disciples. About 350 years ago, a shipload of travelers left Europe, and they landed on the northeast coast of America. And when they first got there, they established a town site. Can you imagine getting on one of those boats and going across the Atlantic Ocean? Our, all, all of our, most of all of our ancestors did that. Right? So there was some Wallace over in Scotland or somewhere that came over. <laughs> right? I'm thankful he did it, not me. Well, they did it. They came on over. They established a town. And the next year, they elected town government. The third year, the town government planned to build a road five miles westward out into the wilderness. But in the fourth year, the people tried to impeach their town government because they thought it was a waste of public funds to build a road five miles west into the wilderness. Who needed to go there anyway? Now think about this. Here were people who had the vision to get on a boat Cross the Atlantic Ocean, land on a plot of land they had never seen, never felt, never touched, didn't know what it was like. You couldn't get on YouTube and, and Google, what's it like to live in North America? Didn't exist. 3,000 miles across the pond, overcome great hardships to get there, but then in just a few years, they argued over a road that went five miles out west and lacked the vision to see why they needed that. With a clear vision of who we can become in Christ, no ocean of difficulty is too great, amen? No ocean of difficulty is too great. But without it, without trusting Jesus in our everyday life and what he's given us, we can rarely move those five miles outside of town. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, as we move forward as a church, let us not get bogged down in the trees that we forget the forest and what it looks like, where we're going Father, I thank you that I can look out in this congregation today and see uh, so many people here. Even as we leave or try to get out of this pandemic in the next few months, I see people here. I see faces 
that I love. So thankful they're here, Lord. So thankful that you've taken us through this past year or so. As we seek to get back on track as a church, not that we ever really left the track, but as we get more people on board, we go down that track, Lord, that we all be looking for what you have told each and every one of us we are to be a part of building your kingdom. Or it may be inviting our coworker to church or sharing Christ with them. Or it might be making something for a child that we'd never see across the seas somewhere. It may be packing more shoe boxes than we ever have. We don't know what it is for different person, different people, Lord. But if it helps us reach our goal of making disciples, Lord, we know it's of you. So, Father, as we close our time today, Maybe there's one in here today that has a vision that, God, you've given them. And they just need to come down front, Lord, and pray to you about it. You would give them the success. That you would show them the way in that vision today, Lord. Maybe there's one in here that's never placed their faith in you today. But today, they, they would finally, finally turn to you. Maybe someone's watching online today. It's never placed their faith in you. But today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name.